Hello, this is Citizens Gone Wild. And today we have a wonderful guest, Dr. Leslie Wilson, who's a professor of history at Montclair State University and has been there for a long time. Do you remember how long? About 35 years. Wow, that's a long time. I wish I were there with you. Me too. Um, what I wanted him for was to comment on an area that he knows things that, uh, bluntly, I don't know. And I wanted to talk, him to talk about Black Lives Matter, which has been a bit of a puzzle to me because a lot of Jewish groups are very excited about it, agitated about it, really. And, uh, and I keep wondering where the heck is the head of this group so I can, I want to get hold of them and ask them some questions or have someone else ask them some questions. And I failed in that task. And today we're going to learn why you will fail in that task too if you try and find the leader of Black Lives Matter. Leslie, why don't you explain for as long as you like what Black, Matter, Black Lives Matter is about? Okay, well, I think Black Lives Matter is I'm sorry, Black Lives Matter, is um, really a historical progression. And so I think um, based on some of the things that we've talked about, that you have to go back to the past. So if you go back to the 1960s, the 1960s is a pivotal time. It's a pivotal time in Black Jewish relationships. African Americans were just becoming African Americans um, in the sense that they were going through transformations, changing the name from Negro, to black, black to Afro-American, from Afro-American to African-American. And it was critical at that point, largely because large numbers of American Jews had supported the civil rights movement. And so right at the pivotal moment, 1964, when everything seemed to be going well, there was a transformation in the black community which I think also will lead to a transformation in the Jewish community as well. Um, and that transformation was seen as a more militant um, and more vibrant movement that was seemed to be undercutting the more stable and more conservative national black movements. But it didn't manifest itself visibly in 1965 as people saw it then. In hindsight, it was there, but it, you know, it, it sort of is in the background. And then what happens, I would argue, is the death of Malcolm X in 1965, the death of Martin Luther King, 1968, um, the death of Whitney Young a few years later. A lot of things are happening, that the major black leadership is dying, um, and that was the conservative black leadership outside of Malcolm X. That movement was dying, physically dying. Um, and then there was a rise or rush of people taking ideas from different places, the ideas of the Nation of Islam, the ideas of Malcolm X, um, some of the ideas of communist China, Mao Zedong, and putting them into new packages. And those new packages represent that more radical viewpoint it was younger, it was more dynamic, it was more instantaneous, and it was more confrontational. And that movement um, had to be killed off. Literally, it had to be killed off. It had to be stopped in some way. And it was killed off. So Black Panthers, Black Liberation Army, um, other groups, they were killed off. What do you mean and they had to be killed off? By who? So they, they either had to be physically or spiritually killed off in, in the sense that white America did not understand the radicalism that was coming from the black community. They were working hand in hand with the civil rights movement, either you know, behind the scenes, next to, or in front of. The younger generation was not satisfied with that because there wasn't enough of the things that the majority of black people needed to gain full equality. And so this radical movement seemed to threaten 
the foundations of American society. And so I would argue that this comes in waves. This is, you know, the first visible wave that people want to talk about in our lifetimes. But this is not the only wave. There were waves like this in the 1920s. There were waves like this right at the beginning of World War II. Um, there were waves going back into the abolition period where there would be radical blacks pushing more moderate blacks. And there would be white allies trying to figure out which side to join with. But by saying that they had to be killed, what I'm suggesting is that when you're afraid of a movement and you don't know what that movement is going to do, you have to stop that movement. And in many cases, you stop that movement by either denouncing the movement, denouncing the leadership, or physically attacking that leadership. And we know if we read the COINTELPRO papers, and I know that you've read them, right? Yes. You know, that there are statements there that talk about a charismatic black leader um, and the fear of a charismatic black leader. And so many of those charismatic black leaders are either killed off by, you know, being murdered or shot, killed by the FBI, killed off by informants, or actually strung out on drugs. Wait, so, I something here. Are you saying that white people get together in a room and decide that we, we're going to do this? I'm not saying that white people sit in the room and decide. I mean, that's sort of um, a strange argument, right? That not white people sit in a room, but <laughs> governmental forces might conspire to do something. I mean, that's what the COINTELPRO papers tell us, right? They, they outline the ideas of the fear of such leaders and that such leaders need to be killed off. So I'm not saying that a group of white people sit in the room and say, okay, we're going to kill these people, but maybe as part of governmental policy or, you know, subversive governmental policy, these people are killed off. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. That's okay. I was just startled by the word kill. So by the time you get to the 1980s, I mean, the majority of the black leadership is in disarray. And I think that what's important there is that there is a, a backlash um, to the civil rights movement. And then there is a backlash to the more radicalized black civil rights movement. So what I suggest is that historically, if you were going to create another black movement, it could not be like the black movements of the 1960s and 1970s. It could not be like the Black Panthers. It could not be like the Nation of Islam. It could not be like the NAACP or CORE or the Urban League because those represented radical fringes and moderate fringes. And the black masses, as I'll define them, um, were uncomfortable with those structures. And so the 1980s into the 2000s are basically a representation of the fragmenting of black America. That during this time period, during the Reagan period, there was a greater stratification of blacks in terms of social classes, in terms of social mobility. There was a greater reaction towards the um, Afrocentric, uh, what I would call the Afrocentric development of black society. And therefore, everyone wasn't on the same page. And I think that in the Reagan years, it was sort of moderate. It wasn't as threatening. But by the Clinton years, it became threatening. So at the end of the first term, beginning of the second term of the Clinton years is the rise of commercial hip hop. And it's the rise of what we would define as gangster rap, even though gangster rap had existed before. But that becomes important because that is the foundation for a new radical generation. And 
that new radical generation uses new tools to disseminate information. In disseminating that information, a new strand of education is being offered to the black community. When those people have children, the difference is, is that their children are gonna see the world vastly differently than someone like you or I, who you know, were going to be born in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s and look at civil rights movements. And so therefore, since kids had heard for generations now that Martin Luther King was assassinated, that the Black Panthers were assassinated, that Malcolm X was assassinated, didn't matter who killed them. And I think that's one of your startling points. It didn't matter who killed them. The belief was that there was a white hand behind their murders. And so therefore they became more radicalized. And in doing so, I would argue they look for new ways of creating a black movement. And that is the foundations for Black Lives Matters. It's a um, organization that uses a different foundation to approach the problems of systemic racism in American society. What are these markers of the Black Lives, uh, Black Lives Movement, as you see them? Uh, you say there are different ways and different rules for this different group. What are they? Like decentralization, I know is important. Maybe you could explain a little bit about that, which kind of startles a lot of people. Okay. Um, what I would argue is that if you were going to look at history and you were going to go to the past, take what you saw happen, you would not form another group like the older groups. You have a younger generation. You have, you know, the advancement of technology. You have important things um, starting to happen in the United States. So, for example, the death of Trayvon Martin is the genesis of Black Lives Matter. But realistically, it could have started at any other time. It's the idea of how people are looking at technology, how technology is being used to show something or to demonstrate something that is different than what happened in the past. So let me just give you two examples. If we look at the death of Emmett King, I'm sorry, of Emmett Till in 1955. Emmett Till was brutally killed in what we would define as a lynching by two white men. He was emasculated. His body was badly scarred and charred. He was shot in the head and he was tied to a wheel and thrown into a river. We don't have any visualization of that. The only visualization that we had is when his mother, Mamie Till, decided that the casket of her son needed to be open so people could see, as she said, what they did to her son. So Jet Magazine took photographs and put those photographs in its magazine, which was a weekly for black people, so they could see visually what happened. We don't do that now. We don't need that anymore because what we're able to see in America now through our cell phones is the actual murder of people, the actual shooting of people, that we have security cameras all over the place. We can see people being shot. We can interpret for ourselves what is happening to people. And this is, this is the transformation. And this is not a white or black thing. This is an American thing. Americans document everything that they see on their cell phones. And so if you were going to create a 21st century organization, it's going to be in somehow tied to that technology. And that technology makes it important. So with the killing of Trayvon Martin, we have the audio that tells us basically what happened. 
He was on the phone talking to a friend. George Zimmerman had also radioed to the police department. So we have all of that evidence and that evidence is played to us in real time so we can come up with our own conclusions. And so what I'm suggesting is, is that the technology of the 21st century plus the history of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s would tell us that we need to form a new type of black organization. Well, we've seen cell phones and videos play an important role across the, the world. In the Middle East, mm -hmm. they, they had a movement that was based on video. Hong Kong is undergoing a, a movement that is based on video. So you're saying that things change to a large degree by technology, not by ideology alone. Right. Okay. Exactly. All right. All right. Now, could you explain a little bit about why I can't seem to get a fix on who's in charge? I would argue that that goes back to my previous statement. If you are afraid that you would have a charismatic leader, and you have to keep in mind what people are reading. Young black people read the COINTELPRO papers all the time, right? That becomes standard reading for young African-American, Latinx, and some Asian-American kids. That is very important because it's, it tells people, people of color in the United States, that there was a plot, that this was not, you know, a conspiracy theory, this was real, and that they should be afraid. And I think that that's an important factor that people are forgetting. That if you interviewed a third or fourth grader in the United States right now, they would tell you probably a sentence about Martin Luther King, but they would tell you that he was shot but they would not know why he was shot, but they would say that he was shot and the dream ended. And I think this becomes the critical factor. You don't want a charismatic leader. You may not want a charismatic male leader. You may not want an organization that follows one person so that when that one person is killed or taken out or discredited, that the organization would fall apart. You want something that is going to be more vibrant, but more decentralized and more in touch with the masses so that you will not have the key fragmentation of the black community and the way it existed before. So you're saying people consciously devised the new system because they were worried about what had happened in the past. Yes, yes. So they devise a new system and Black Lives Matter is created by three women, three dynamic women who live in different parts of the United States who were affected by the murder of Trayvon Martin. Their initial focus was on police brutality and vigilantism and acts of violence against black people, but it evolved because these three women were interested in other issues. And so the intersectionality of African-American lives, which are race, gender, class, sexual orientation, gender identity, drive the mission of Black Lives Matter. So they actually thought through, this sounds like Marxist from the 1930s, they actually thought through all of this and they thought of issues like intersectionality, which I still have not been able to explain to anyone I know. And, and so this was a conscious effort. It wasn't something that just sprung up. It, it was a conscious effort by these three women to create a movement like this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a reaction. But right. as, I, as I said to you earlier, one of the key things in the formation of almost every major black organization, particularly of the 20th century, is an act of violence that is perpetrated against black Americans. And that we have to keep that in perspective as well. That for example, the NAACP was formed in reaction to the Springfield riots, right? That the 
formation of CORE came about largely because of social conditions in the New York metropolitan area during the 1930s and 40s. So that there are always coalitions of people who are being brought together by some act of violence. The Black Panthers are brought together by an act of violence in Oakland, right? And so what's important is that once you bring people together, once people start discussing these things, they think of how they can create a movement, but this movement is now different than the movements of the past. And so the key thing in terms of Black Lives Matter is the creation of chapters. Chapters which can run almost autonomously and chapters that are located in different parts of the country and in Canada and in the United Kingdom. You need to get permission, like I'd like to start a chapter or something? Or you... Yes, you do. You just can't start a chapter on your own. Okay, all right. But here's, here's the key part that you're, you're interested in is that the chapters can function independently of each other, right? And so they can have local leadership. What Black America has done is they've systematically created what seems to white America as an underground network. Right. But it's not an underground network. It is a philosophy of life. And then it is a philosophy of life which is tied to a movement. White America just seems to see a hashtag and they react negatively to a hashtag. Like the hashtag is black lives matter. And then people say, well, all lives matter or blue lives matter. Yeah. That's not what the hashtag is about. The hashtag is about how do we as people of African heritage defend ourselves against acts of violence in the society that we live in. And so, where I feel the failings of the larger society are in terms of this matter is that they can't get past the hashtag. The hashtag is also a product of the 21st century, right? We didn't have hashtags when you and I were growing up. Right. But what does a hashtag mean? There are hashtags all the time. Kids are creating hashtags. Why is this hashtag so offensive? And I think it's offensive to white Americans and to some black Americans, because they think that it's singling out black people. What the leaders of Black Lives Matter are saying is that we are not singling out people. We are speaking about ourselves and putting ourselves first. That any organization needs to put themselves first and foremost in any struggle. The struggle is about us, and we are telling you that the struggle is about us, and we are putting ourselves in the center. Can whitish people uh, join uh, Black Lives Matter? Certainly. There, there are allies for every movement. It's not an exclusive club of black people. All right. And uh, white I, people can donate to Black Lives Matter as well. Well, I know they can donate, but I can... Have you been surprised at the amounts of money that are being thrown at the... Black Lives Matter. I mean, I, some of these companies are giving. I saw figures the other day: forty million, one million. This is where is that money? I think that that's something you would have to ask the leadership of Black Lives Matter. Okay. I can't tell you about that, and I'm not sure that they're getting like tons of money the way that people believe that they're getting tons of money. You okay. know, there there are rumors like George Soros is you know, giving them money, bankrolling them. I don't yeah. think that that's actually accurate. Okay. Um, by the way, as long as we're here and we're talking about things I don't understand, could you give a, an explanation of intersectionality that I could tell to my neighbor on my right? Intersectionality is when various things are coexisting to create a certain environment. So the environment that we live in or the environment that someone lives in has multiple in intersectionalities. It can be the intersectionality of my gender, my race, my class, my sexual orientation, my beliefs in life. Uh, wait, I'm still not getting what is 
it's the different factors. Let me, if I could explain it, it would be like a ball and the ball in the center is you. And then there are other balls in orbit around you. Oh, they belong together somehow. They belong together and have an impact on your life. So the intersectionality of a black person and healthcare is a critical one. And that could explain Black Lives Matter and it can explain the protests that we see in the streets right now. That if there's a disproportionality of people of color being affected by this virus, what does it tell us about healthcare in terms of how this virus is being addressed when it comes to black or brown bodies versus when it comes to white bodies, right? So if we were looking at that intersectionality there, we could argue that maybe black and brown people in the United States do not have the same type of healthcare maybe do not have the same quality of health insurance that white Americans do. And therefore their intersectionality with the healthcare system is vastly different. So um, the people that you, I, this seems to me to have a should factor in it. And it seems to me to be saying, if you are um, interested in, in uh, race, gender, sexual orientation, you should look upon all these other people as potential allies. Mm -hmm. Is that an explanation? Mm-hmm, yeah. All right. Um, I noticed that um, a lot of people, you know, were saying um, that they still didn't quite get what black people wanted. Um, but then I saw a statement by someone who, who was ticked off because, and they were trying to explain why they were ticked off, and they said, this is what it is. It's not so much the big programs as it is the little bits and pieces that make up our lives. And the, her com particular complaint was, look, it takes a video before people tuned in to the question of police and black people, uh, violence between the two. That, that people didn't, uh, for black people to be believed, there had to be a video. But for white people to be believed, there doesn't have to be a video. That's my interpretation of what she said. Is that kind of why people are upset that, 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 you have to, that black people are still not treated as equal, not in the sense of getting into a school, but in the sense of other things like they're not believed. Well, I think that, that what the person, I can't, I don't know exactly what they said, but to interpret it, I would say that the lives of black people are vastly different than the lives of white people. And white people are in a state of disbelief of what is happening to the majority of black people in this country, right? And that it doesn't matter if you're a radical white person, a conservative white person, or a moderate white person, you still have a degree of disbelief. But you need to understand that we are still, like the Kerner Commission report suggested, we are still developing two uniquely different societies. There is a white society and there is a black society. And there is also a Latinx society, there is a Native American society, and there is an Asian society. Everyone who is a person of color in the United States has the advantage of learning about white people from television. We see all the shades of whiteness on television. We learn all the degrees of how white people function in America through television. It can be a documentary, it can be a TV show, it can be the news. At the same time, White people do not get to see all the shades of blackness or Latinx communities or Asian American communities or Native American communities through television. And so therefore, when people of color tell white people something might be happening, white people are like in disbelief, like how could this happen? We're in America, that doesn't seem possible. So these videos, 
have become important because for the first time, white people can see with their own eyes acts of violence against black people. It doesn't mean that they're going to still believe it because when we had the Rodney King incident, and that was in 1992, people still didn't believe what they saw. A jury didn't believe what it saw either. But now, roughly once a month, we have a Black or Latinx person being killed by the police or being killed by vigilantes. And we have the video evidence, right? Whether it's just the audio or it's the physical video itself, but we have the evidence. And so people are saying, look, you can see that this is happening. But I think that in many cases, people are saying, well, this happens to white people too. And therefore they try to downplay it. But what people of color are saying is that it doesn't happen to white people in the same way. We're not saying that white people don't get shot by the police. We're not saying that certain things don't happen to white Americans because we know they do. What we're saying is they happen differently. There's a different response. A community responds to something based on what is happening in their community. And if you don't know what's happening in a black community or an Asian community or a Latinx community, you can't judge their response. Let me, okay. I have actually put in a lot of time trying to get a handle on the uh, police black people statistics. Mm -hmm. This is what I've concluded. Uh, and tell me what you think of it. It is true that black people, uh, the police are not more likely to kill black people. Uh, but they, in my, from what I've looked at, they are more likely to hassle black people, to uh, maybe lightly wound them, uh, to, uh, what do they call it, rouse them, to uh, stop them. Uh, to question them. Does that seem about right or not? Um, I don't think so. I think, I think that if you look in sheer numbers, yes, more white people are being shot by the police than black people. But there's a disproportionality of the percentage of people in the United States who are black or people in the United States who are Latino, right, who are being shot and killed by the police in terms of the percentage of white Americans who are being shot or killed but by the you're police. You're saying that... So I would say... First, it's about the proportionality. And secondly, I would say it's about the treatment, which was your statement, of people in communities, right? So again, look at a community and look what's happening in a community. If I live in a, in a community and people are being, as you use the word, rousted by the police, but then I move to another community and I still get rousted by the police, then I'm going to assume that I'm being rousted by the police because I'm black or I'm Latin or I'm Asian. But if I'm in my own community, a predominantly black community, and everyone in that community is saying, wow, the police treat us differently, then they're going to come out of that community with a different sentiment towards the police. And they're going to react differently when confronted by the police. And it doesn't matter if they did something that was criminal in the past. In most cases, what these videos are showing is that these people could have been treated differently. A drunk man does not need to be shot if he's drunk. A man with mental illness does not need to be shot just because he has mental illness. If you're a police officer, and I, if there are members of my family who are policemen, if you're a police officer and someone's coming with you, at you with a knife, the, the first instinct should not be to pull out a gun and shoot to kill. But yet we see this on an almost daily basis where a video is shown to us over and over and over again of a police officer and it doesn't matter if they're white, black, Asian, Latina, shooting a black person. 
And that becomes important because it sinks into the mind. It creates a psychological state that most black people are afraid of the police. And if you, if you, if you look at this idea of black parents saying that they have to have a talk with their kids about the police, it doesn't matter if they're wealthy or they're poor, it's telling you that there's a form of systemic racism in the United States where a community of people, whether living in the same community or communalizing together, have a general apprehension about something which is supposed to be natural. Is most of the, the thinking and, and uh, anxiety about police, and uh, how central is this question of police to the whole issue of race relations in America? I think right now that's, that's one of the most critical things. I want to be treated equally. I can't tell you personally how many times I've been stopped by police officers. You, you have been stopped. Oh my gosh, I, I get stopped at least once a year. And I would tell you that when I'm getting stopped, in most cases, I have not done anything wrong. But when I am stopped, I already have an attitude, largely because I want to know why they're stopping me. Sometimes I can be completely quiet and calm, and other times I can't. But I can tell you, even when going to visit my parents and parking in front of their house, that someone would inevitably call the police and say, oh, there's, there's a suspicious car in the neighborhood. You know, um, this person's sitting in a car talking on the phone and the police would roll up and they would ask me, well, why am I sitting here? Okay. Now, there's no law in the United States, as far as I know, that says that you can't park on the street and sit in front of a house. You don't have to get out of the car and go in a house, but yet the police officer would pull up. Now, here's what I'm trying to say to you. The police officer could have read my plates, could have, you know, done a whole host of other things, could have just driven by and seen the car and not done anything. But the initial response was a neighbor called and said that they were afraid and the police came. And then to me, the police are not being friendly. They're being protective of someone else's rights as opposed to my own. So by the time I get my license out and I get my insurance card out, right, that they should be able to have seen in this particular case that my car and my driver's license were registered to my parents' address. So I was literally sitting in front of my parents' house. Now, why would someone do that? Do you think that, okay, what if the police said, which I've heard them say, look, uh, we're playing the odds here. Yeah, but, that, but that's, that's, a, that's a racist statement, George, in the sense that why are we playing the odds? And, 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 and that's, where the, that's where the apprehension comes from. It's not a racist statement in the sense that it's racist. It's a racist statement in the sense that it's a thought that the police officer would have to say to you, I'm playing the odds. If there was a white person in a car sitting in front of their parents' house, a white neighbor would not look out of the window and call the police. If there was, you know, an Asian neighborhood and a white person was sitting in a car in front of a house, the Asian people would not look out of the window and say, oh my gosh, there's a car there, we need to call the police. That's where this becomes important because the preconceived notions of race and the preconceived notions of fear in the United States are directed towards people of color. The idea of stereotyping have become very powerful in the minds of white society because the images that they see of black people, of Latin people, of Asian people in the United States are all based on stereotypes. Well, what if I'm saying, look, this is a stereotype, but it's a stereotype. What was it Jimmy the Greek used to say? Um, oh, never mind Jimmy the Greek. But anyway, <laughs> he, he would say the race is not always that it's swift or strong, but that's the way to bet. Right. Uh, 
And that's the stereotype, right? And people got offended by it. And that's how he lost his job on CBS. That's right. He's no longer placing bets for all I know. Um, Okay. All right. Um, I want to bring up one other issue. Actually, I want to listen to you for a long time. Um, Why are, how did Jews get roped into this business? I mean, we seem to be available for yelling at by any group except the Shriners. Um, So, why? I mean, I have articles here I could go on and on and show you all these articles, but, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Perhaps of the worst thing you can say to a Jew is, is use the word genocide and accuse <laughs> Jews of committing genocide. Genocide is a serious business to Jews. And, and to yell, you know, you're committing genocide against the Palestinians is just, it's grotesque in my opinion. Of course, I'm getting a little too excited now, but go ahead. Okay. Um, what, I, what? I think I think that you're 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 looking at something that you have to really put into perspective, right? Um, what's being labeled now as black anti-Semitism is basically where I started our conversation. That when that next wave of Black radicalism started in the United States in the 1960s. There was a view that certain white people would no longer or should no longer be treated as allies, that they had become oppressors. And I think that that is where the beginnings of some aspects of Black anti-Semitism begin. But people of color have different types of what I would define as different types of anti-Semitism. And I think they develop at different times as young Blacks, young Latinx um, kids develop alliances with other groups that are being defined as people of color. I would say that if you looked at the Israeli situation, the relationship of race as black Americans look at Israel and look at the Palestinians has a really sort of um, warped history, but it's sort of a notion of spiritualism, right? That blacks in America saw themselves as being oppressed and Palestinians saw themselves as being oppressed and they formed a bond through their oppression and they borrowed from each other. Yet, at the same time, I think the critical issue is what happened with Andrew Young when he went to meet with the PLO, when he was working for Jimmy Carter and how he lost his job. He was removed. Right. So I think that if you're looking for flashpoints, the flashpoints for older people are actual flashpoints. The flashpoints for kids are alliances. So that now you can have these alliances and if there are notions of you know, bias, discrimination, anti-Semitism that are being developed in these alliances, they're gonna come out more frequently. And I think that's what you're seeing. You're gonna see the same types of, you know, anti-Asian racism being, you know, committed by whites, but also in a sense by kids of color as well, because they're based on these alliances that kids have, and they're based on the information which are shared between kids. So if you look at, for example, you know, one of the things that um, you had pointed out to me, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar article, which I think is really good, is that there is a lot of anti-Semitism in hip hop, for example. And so hip hop culture is disseminated to young people, young people listen to it, 
They know the words. They may not pay attention to the words, but they can repeat the words. There can be anti-Semitic lyrics inside of it. And so people say those things. In some cases, it may seem to be, you know, well, they didn't know. In other cases, it might be very clear. But where is it coming from and how is it being developed is what's important. And so again, you need a actual flashpoint, right? One that older people like ourselves can understand. And that is about, in most cases, the ability of self-control in terms of being able to control your own environment, not being you know, censored or oppressed by your environment. And so we see cases of that too, where young African-Americans were trying to develop something and it seemed to them that a Jewish person was either in the position to be able to censor them or not let them move forward. Could and you? music is a, is a critical place, right? Where we have real stories and then we have rumors of people who were either Italian or Jewish being the gatekeepers for black musicians to move forward. And- Wait, let me just stop. Yeah. Benny Goodwin was the first guy to employ black musicians. I mean, yeah, but that's, that's, that's not in these kids' lifetimes. And that's what I'm trying to say. It's, you, you have to think about students. Right? And what students know versus what you can teach students. You can teach students about Benny Goodman, but most kids do not know the history of Benny Goodman. They don't know, for example, the history of someone like Frank Sinatra working with African-Americans and giving African-Americans a chance. They grow up with information that tells them something that may or may not be true, but they internalize it. And that becomes what they disseminate to their friends. So okay. to destroy this wave of anti-Semitism, it's going to take a lot of work, part one. But it's going to take a lot of education in terms of the coalitions that were formed, right? And then it's going to take a lot of education on the parts of white American society to understand where those rifts develop and how those rifts can be healed. But where can this education possibly take place? You just said it's not occurring in the classroom. But it could occur in the classroom. It could. No, it could. There's no reason why not. But it's sort of like you used the word genocide earlier. And society has, has been really reactive to the word genocide. Does genocide belong to one particular group? And I think that that's an example of this education, right? Is that the Holocaust was probably the worst thing that happened in the 20th century. That millions of people were killed. However, how do we disseminate that information about the Holocaust in a classroom and then in a larger society? But now what we're seeing is that other groups are saying, you don't own that word. You can't trademark that word. That word genocide belongs to Jewish Americans, sort of like how Black Lives Matter seems to belong to Black Americans. And therefore, you have the same type of backlash. The Armenians jump up and they say, uh-uh, we had a genocide and it was worse. And then Native Americans jump up and say, there was a genocide that took place 400 years ago and it's been going on ever since. We've lost our land, we've been killed, we've been exterminated. Every group is gonna say that there was a genocide. The question is, how do you teach a society of young kids that all genocides matter and to understand from all genocides to end the bias, to end the racism? And what we have is a society that doesn't do that. We have a society that picks on one group as opposed to other groups, or emphasizes the history of one group versus the surely, of another group. Surely, if you look at what went on with the Jews, I mean, it's no great honor if anyone else wants to step up, go ahead. 
but um, there are certain differences here. Um, the number of Indians that were killed deliberately is maybe a couple of 10,000. I'm not saying that's good, but it's bad, but it's not the same. And there are a few other genocides. Actually, they are the, the one that happened in German Southwest Africa to a group that hardly mm -hmm. anyone knows about. That was flat out kill them all. Mm -hmm. And by the way, one of the officers there was uh, uh, Gehring, uh, the father of the guy who was active in World War II. But yeah. okay, but, but not every mass killing is, is genocide. And I, I think that's an important word. You want it available. So when you say genocide, people run and try and help you. But, but it becomes a hashtag, though, and that's all I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not disputing that it's not an important word. I'm saying it becomes a hashtag. A Native American person would just come out and argue with you right now saying that millions of Native Americans were killed, right? That they would argue that it's not just in the United States, it's in Canada, Mexico, all the way down the continent. Are you that saying It was their land, and they were killed, and they basically wiped off of the land over you know, related to second-class citizenship. Are you arguing that the word genocide should be loosely used then, or should be available for anyone who has a complaint, or? I'm saying, I'm not saying that in particular. I'm saying that the way in which we use genocide in America is related to one group. And what I'm suggesting is, is that other groups take offense to that Similarly, how other groups take offense to the word Black Lives Matter. That we have. So what I'm really saying, George, is that we have a messed up society. We have a society that teaches kids uh, uh, a concept that is not explained. That we need to have more equalization of the way in which we see the struggles of people in the United States. And that we're not doing that that every group feels that they own something and they own a spirit, a, a story or a narrative and that their narratives are not getting out. And, and you that their narratives need to be shared in a more democratic way. Okay, I, I don't disagree with that, but I don't see how it can possibly be done either. Um, well, for example, other people died in the Holocaust besides Jews, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So how do we teach that in a way that kids understand that? Do you think that's possible unless everyone, God bless you, had a teacher like you? I think we're going to continue to use a blunt instrument. And I don't know how this can be done. There have been so many uh, classes on the Holocaust and that. I think it is different. But I agree with you that people should explain why is this different? You okay. know, why is this not a Holocaust and this is? Why should we learn about these poor souls in German South Africa? It, it can be done. I, I just, I don't see it being done. But okay, it, it can be done.